Good morning. This morning we're reading from Matthew 8, 1 to 17. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking him for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her, and her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Thank you, Hilton. There's um, the readings in your Bible, and there's an outline. Uh, sorry, the readings in your leaflet, and there's an outline there as well. Now, I know you're all staunch monarchists. But um, what would you do? How do you respond to a king? Well, if Prince, sorry, King Charles, it's a bit hard to get her done, isn't it? King Charles walks in here now. This is, got a picture, thanks. This is um, our, our old friend Chris. We knew Chris from um, being on camps um, when we were growing up and leading as well. And this is Chris receiving the British Empire Medal for services to the community. Uh, so Chris um, lives in York and he, for many years, uh, for 37 years, he worked on the city walls in York. You can, you can walk around them, but he opened them up and locked up the gates every night. Um, estimated, walked an estimated 64,000 kilometers over those 37 years. 
Now, I'm not sure if King Charles himself presented him the medal, but presumably if he did, there's a way you're supposed to respond to him. You know, I don't know. You stick your ears out or you bow or something. Curtsy, that kind of thing. A right way to respond to a king. So in Matthew's Gospel, returning to Matthew's Gospel, the story so far is he's arranged his material to give us a clear message that Jesus is the Messiah or Christ. That just means anointed one. As in he's God's long-promised rescuer king. Jesus comes announcing that with his arrival, the kingdom of God is near because he's the king. So what's the right way to respond to him? Um, just to catch up a bit more where we're up to in Matthew, where, what, where we're looking at now fits in. So it's a good idea to any passage you look at, see where it fits in with what's come before it. Well, there's a neat, and what's coming up, there's a neat summary, Matthew chapter 4, that sums up this bit of his, his um, preaching career, if you like. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So last April, we looked at um, the prime example of uh, the first half of that verse, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his teaching. Uh, uh, that's kind of his manifesto of that kingdom. And you'll remember Jesus put the ethical demands of the law kind of on steroids, asked for even more. And that did two things. It helped us to be poor in spirit, to mourn our sin and humbly know our need for Jesus to save us. And also those words helped us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to genuinely desire to want to obey Jesus' words from the heart. Uh, and not just go after a sort of surface-level obeying of rules. And at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, it was summed up like this. Chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Authority. So that was the first half of chapter 4, verse 23. Now... Uh, we're seeing Jesus' authority in teaching. And there's Matthew, this was a kind of the first big block of teaching. Matthew's got another four big blocks of teaching. But back to where we are now. Now we zoom in on the second half of 4.23. Jesus' authority over disease and sickness. Okay, so that's the big setup. We're in a bit looking at Jesus' authority over disease and sickness. And what we're looking at today um, is three surprising healings. Well, three and a bit surprising healings, through which we find out some surprising things. Examples that continue to show us Jesus' authority, but also show us how to respond to this king. So there's an outline in your leaflets. We're going to look at a surprising touch with the man with leprosy, surprising surprises, looking at the centurion's servant's healing, and we'll look at Peter's mother-in-law and those other healings and see how that points to a surprising servant. Surprising touch, surprising surprises, surprising servant. Say that quickly and keep your false teeth in. That's good. First of all, then, a surprising touch with the man with leprosy, looking at verses 1 to 4. Surprise number one is that this man approaches and comes near to Jesus at all. So chapter 8, verse 1. 
When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy here is sort of a catch-all term for various terrible skin diseases um, that could change the color and texture and odor of your skin, give you a raspy voice, and it could destroy the nerve endings in your skin so you didn't feel parts of you getting injured. And as if all that wasn't horrible enough, for an Israelite, it also meant living life separate to everyone else. In Levitic, the law in Leviticus 13 said a leper had to wear torn clothes. He had to keep his hair messy. He had to cover his mouth and he had to cry out, unclean, unclean, in order to prevent disease spreading to others. And this uncleanness meant that people with leprosy could not, couldn't live, couldn't reside within the community of Israel. They were banished from being with God's people, and from going to the temple. So to all intents and purposes, they were like the living dead, physically, socially, spiritually. So for this man to approach at all, whilst there's a crowd around, is surprising. And for him to come right up to Jesus' feet is even more surprising. But such is the authority that Jesus is displaying that overrides all these other concerns and it becomes the right thing to do. And so he kneels at Jesus' feet. And did you notice the balance of the man's faith? He's absolutely confident that Jesus can heal him, make him clean. And yet he's humble enough to say, if you will. He's demonstrating being poor in spirit. And so Jesus does a surprising thing. The one thing you definitely don't do with men to men with leprosy, he touches him. Verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. So with this one touch, with these words, Jesus is saying so much. The touching the man should have been like the spiritual equivalent of trying to wrestle a toddler into a car seat whilst they're holding a chocolate bar and you're wearing white t-shirt and jeans. According to Leviticus 5 verse 3, Jesus becomes unclean the moment he touches this letter, this leper, sorry. But Jesus is saying, not only have you not made me unclean, I've made you clean. So just to explain, this clean, unthing clean was, was in the law, was all about being able to approach God. So God was present in a special way somehow with his people, originally in the tabernacle, the tent, and later in the temple, in the temple now as Jesus is doing this. But there's a big problem. How can God, completely pure and holy, be anywhere near sinful people? without those people being destroyed immediately? And the answer to that was, very carefully, with a lot of rules, with a lot of symbolic and ritual rigmarole. And as part of that, things and people were considered clean or unclean, holy or profane. And all that helps God's people to understand the seriousness and the consequences 
of sin in very practical ways. And no one would have appreciated how badly sin separates us from God more than people with leprosy. Because they were separated from everyone. Yet here's Jesus with the authority to proclaim and actually make this man clean. Jesus is showing he's got the authority to declare who gets to approach God or not. Jesus has got the authority to declare who gets to approach God or not. So even the seemingly hopeless, even those with no chance of healing themselves, can come to God through Jesus saying, we're clean. And Jesus is willing. He is willing. He humbled himself to becoming one of us, humbling himself to death on a cross to make this cleansing real and effective, a done deal for anyone who trusts in him. Now, Jesus tells the man to keep quiet about this. You see this a lot in the Gospels. See, healing people like this isn't primarily what Jesus is there for, and he doesn't want diverting from his main task of proclaiming God's kingdom. But still, he does stop, doesn't he? He stops to help this man and these other healings we'll look at. I think that ought to shape what we're on about as individual Christians and as a church. We rightly keep our hearts on things above, work at things of eternal significance. We don't just want to be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. But like Jesus, we should have compassion and we should let ourselves be interrupted by genuine physical and practical need. Because Jesus did. So he tells the man to keep quiet and he tells him to go and see the priest. Now it's not to complete something that Jesus has left undone. But Jesus says why, it's as a testimony to them. So for now, get in the, uh, uh, as Jesus speaks, at that moment, get in the usual rubber stamp of the law that Jesus has come to fulfill. will act as a witness that God's kingdom is breaking in, that Christ has come. So Jesus declared this man, the most outcast of outcasts, clean. Normally he'd have no right to be near anyone, let alone approach them. Yet because of who Jesus is, because of his authority, not just over disease, but over who gets to approach God, he can come to Jesus' feet and go away clean. And I think sometimes people spend a lifetime dodging Jesus because they think they're too far gone. They think they've got some special category of sin that is so bad that they can't face up to it themselves often, let alone face up to God with it. But if we humble ourselves enough to recognize Jesus' authority over us, humble ourselves enough to ask him, he says, I am willing, be clean. So that's the man with leprosy. Next, we've got the centurion's surprising surprises. Excuse me. The centurion's surprising surprises. You see, the least surprising thing about this encounter with the centurion 
is given what's just happened is that the centurion's servant is healed. We kind of trust that Jesus can do that. And that is amazing and miraculous. But there are many more surprises here. First surprise then is that this man approaching Jesus is a Gentile. I think he's non-Jewish. People, Jewish people generally kept themselves apart from. That's why Jesus' home region where he is in this part of the gospel, Galilee, why that was looked down on. It was known as Galilee of the Gentiles because there's a border region. There were loads of Gentiles there. So it's kind of looked down on. So he's a Gentile. And from the Jewish people's point of view, he's the worst kind of Gentile. He's a Roman, part of the pagan occupying force. Now, we know from Luke's account of this that he's a good egg and he helped build a local synagogue, well regarded. But still, he's a Roman. And even more surprising for a rabbi, teacher like Jesus, Jesus offers to go to his house. Now, you've got to admire the straightforward confidence of this centurion, haven't you? He's an important man. He's equivalent of a major, a hundred men under his command. But he's humble. Verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And this is a man of the world. He's seen action. And yet, look at the faith he shows. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. You see, this man understands. He says, jump, and his men jump. Getting an order from him is like getting an order from Caesar himself. And this man who understands authority, recognized authority when he saw it in Jesus. Authority even over disease. Jesus, uh, sorry, this hardened military man reckoned Jesus had the authority to heal even across distance, even without seeing, even just by saying the word. I mean, some things you need to be there in person for, don't you? I think we all worked that out over COVID. Um, but it's like, so I understand like university these days, it's not like when I was there. You don't even have to turn up. You can watch a lecture on your computer. You can watch a recording of it if you miss it. Now, for some lecturers I can think of that I had, that would have been great, you know, watch them at two double speed and you wouldn't have missed, it would have been better that way. But for good lecturers, for good speakers, you just know that you get to feel their authority on those subjects more with them being there in person, don't you? But the centurion recognised that Jesus has got such authority His word is so powerful, so effective, that he can fully exercise it beyond his physical presence. So Jesus could have been on Zoom. It would have been just as effective. Sure enough, verse 13, the servant is healed in that moment. Um, Just before we go further with this um, account. Let me tell you what you shouldn't take away from it, because this is a takeaway I was taught as a young Christian, which is quite damaging, so I just want to address that. It's the idea that the servant was healed because of the quality of the centurion's faith. The idea that the servant was healed because the centurion, because Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith, isn't he? Is that why the servant was healed? If you think that way, of course, the devastating flip side of that is if we pray for people to be healed and they aren't healed, well, who's to blame? Well, that would be us, wouldn't it? If, it? 
If God's sitting there with his arms folded, waiting for our faithometer to get to the right level before he'll say yes, then it's down to us, isn't it? That's a load of rubbish, and it's not what the Bible teaches. All right? The important thing about the centurion in this encounter isn't the quality of his faith. It's that simply, uh, uncomplicatedly, he has faith in Jesus. And he just turns up with the request. He doesn't even ask, actually, in, in this account. He just turns up and says, my servant's sick. And Jesus offers the healing before the centurion demonstrates his deep understanding of Jesus' authority. The important thing is who the centurion's faith is in, Jesus. And the point Jesus wants to make about him is that he's not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. Which brings us to the biggest surprise, at least for the religious leaders listening in on the crowd. Jesus says, what has just happened is indicative of who will be in and who will be out of the kingdom of God. First, who's in? Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's who's in. So this east and west language is picking up on um, prophecies in Psalm 107, in Isaiah, and in Malachi of God gathering to get him to himself people from all nations, from the whole world, gathering Gentiles like this Roman centurion. And that feast banquet language is the picture Isaiah was given of all these people coming together in God's kingdom. So a feast, a party is the picture the Bible gives of heaven. Uh, So example, Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. The best party you've ever been to, basically. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So those trusting Jesus from all the nations in, seat at the table at the big party, But here's the big surprise, verse 12, who is out? But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who think they're entitled to be in God's kingdom just because they are ethnically Israelite, excluded, shut out of the party. Jesus has already said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the ones who enter the kingdom of God are the ones who hear his words of him calling them to repent and trust in him and obey. Those obeying from the heart, not just going through the motions. So in other words, top religious leaders will find themselves outside this kingdom, no invite to the feast, whilst this Gentile 
military man working for the bad guys has a seat at the table. This is the first of six places I found in Matthew where he refers to being outside of his kingdom as a place of darkness. And in most of those cases, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a picture of one of great anguish, grief, regret. And the Bible is clear that hell is a real place. And no one talks about it in the New Testament more than Jesus does. It's always in this picture language, so we can't be too prescriptive about what it's really like. We know elsewhere in the Bible it's made clear that the judgment people face is a fair, proportionate sentence. But six times, what Jesus wants us to know about it is very clear. You don't want to end up there. However you paint it, darkness and wailing and gnashing of teeth doesn't sound good, does it? But look how simple it is to avoid it. Just by coming to Jesus. Just by coming to Jesus. So how does that work? Well, our last point, um, looking at these final healings, Matthew shows us Jesus is the surprising servant. So this healing of Peter's mother-in-law, this is the no bells and whistles one. She doesn't even ask to be healed. Her, and her having a fever, it's not just that she needs a bit of Panadol, which to take that as meaning she's in imminent danger of death. But Jesus simply touches her hand, her fever leaves her, and she's well enough to start waiting on him. That evening, more people are brought to him. Jesus demonstrates his authority over evil spirits as well as disease. Uh, notice evil spirits and disease are kept separate. The biblical word understood. There's a difference between mental illness and the work of evil spirits. So what are we to make of all this healing that Jesus does? Well, Matthew, we don't have to guess. Matthew tells us the conclusion we should come to. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So Matthew is quoting a section of the prophet Isaiah, we uh, call the servant song. So let's have a look at a bit more of it. We have this in communion as well. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is the significance Matthew's ascribing to these miracles. Matthew's saying that Jesus' healings are foreshadowing, a sneak preview of his taking the sickness of our sin upon himself on the cross. Matthew's telling us that there's more going on than people being healed and demons being driven out, significant and amazing as those things are in and of themselves. But if you think about it, all those people would go on to die. They would all go on to sin again. They'd all go on to face judgment like we all do. The fact that these people needed healing at all is because we live in a world 
under God's right and just partial general judgment for sin. Now, we've got to be careful here. We can almost never draw a direct line between someone's particular suffering and God's judgment. Don't do that. You just don't know. But we'll all come across suffering that we can't imagine a good reason for this side of eternity, won't we, in life? What we have to trust, what we have to do is trust that the level of suffering God is allowing in the world is what is best for the world in this age, whilst he keeps a lid on evil going unfettered and gathers a people for his kingdom. So that's why those people were suffering in the first place, generally. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about suffering. Jesus cared about suffering and had the compassion on these people and reversed their suffering. But Matthew's telling us by pointing to Isaiah's servant song that there is more to it than that. That Jesus' actions in these accounts are pointing to a greater healing, pointing to him being a rescuer king that will not only reverse individual suffering, but bring a permanent solution to the fact that we deserve to be cast out into the darkness. Pointing to this permanent solution. And Jesus' actions are showing us the way into this kingdom where all that suffering is gone. It's not to work our way into it or demand our right to be there because we're part of the right people group, but to come to him humble, mourning our sin and asking him to cleanse us. Asking him to restore us to spiritual and relational good health with God. So there's more to these healings. They're showing us that Jesus is the suffering servant. Now, it's clear from the Gospels that Jesus did loads of healings. Why has Matthew highlighted these three? Just to finish, why these three? First, I think so that everyone can know Jesus has got the authority to decide who gets to approach God. So everyone can know Jesus has the authority who gets to decide who gets to approach God. So that everyone can know Jesus has got the, de- the authority to declare, I am willing, be clean. So that ordinary sinful Gentiles like you and me, as well as any Jewish person, ordinary sinful Gentiles like you and me can know the invite into God's kingdom. That's for us as well. And to give us a sneak preview of Jesus' kingdom coming in, rolling back the curse that all creation is under in judgment for sin, a sneak preview of how things will be under his total rule. Sin, evil, sickness, all done away with. And so we know how to respond to a king. So we know the right response to King Jesus humbly asking him to save us with simple confidence in who he is and his authority to save. Let's pray. Father, thank you for having recorded for us these healings and helping us be clear about what to take away from them. Thank you that Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross.
and that he has all authority, that he is our king. And please help us to keep responding to him in repentance and faith, trusting in him. Amen.